Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jay Jaffe. Jay is a writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of the book, The Cooperstown Casebook, who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, who should be in, and who should pack their plaques. Jay, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's good to be back. Well, Jay, you were in Cooperstown a couple weeks ago for the induction weekend. I know you've been there before, but tell me what this trip was like being there on induction day and just not just being there, but being there as a guy selling a book about the Hall of Fame. Well, this was actually the first time I'd ever been there for induction day. Um, And, you know, it was overwhelming in that regard. And to have the, you know, the, uh, uh, the opportunity to sell a book about my Hall of Fame work and also have my wife and uh, 11-month-old daughter in tow. It was it was a real adventure of a weekend. And, um, you know, I'm really lucky that uh, uh, I'm friends with Jeff Katz, the mayor of Cooperstown and a fellow author on uh, on Thomas Dunn books. Uh, he wrote the book uh, Split Season 1981. Uh, he he offered uh, a year ago to, to put me up, uh, uh, to put us up over Hall of Fame weekend when, when the time came. And, and that was just a godsend. Um, you know, it just made life so much easier, uh, not having to drive 30 minutes out of town to a hotel or something like that. Um, you know, selling my book on, on main street on the Saturday, uh, was, was awesome. I mean, it, it, uh, uh, all these fans are lined up, uh, you know, to, they want to watch the parade, uh, of hall of famers later in the day. And there's just, there's all these memorabilia shops and, you know, food and drink. And, you know, it's just like this little circus going on and people just come up and they buy your book. They talk to you. Um, you know, a couple wanted to get a picture. Uh, I had fellow, uh, you know, fellow writers, BBWA president, even, uh, Susan Slusser came up and bought a book. And it was really cool that, uh, um, you know, that, uh, I'm out in the public and people are, you know, want to buy my book and want to, want to meet me and whatever. So that was neat. Um, and then, you know, the induction itself was, was really cool. Unfortunately, it was like, you know, with five people getting inducted, I sat, I sat there. I mean, it, it was only 71 degrees out, but it felt like 100 because there's just no shade to be had there. Uh, it made me rethink my position on the small hall, uh, so to speak. But um, seeing Tim Raines inducted was was very cool because that's somebody I've been advocating for, uh, you know, for as long as, as he's been on the ballot and somebody who, you know, I remember fondly as one of my favorite players back in the day. Um, I actually got a chance to spend a little bit of time uh, in the orbit of Tim Raines, thanks to Jonah Carey, who, as we know, worked hard, uh, very hard to uh, to help get Raines elected. Yeah, Raines actually thanked him in his speech. Yeah, so uh, Jonah, yeah, Jonah kind of, uh, you know, a native Montreal, native Montreal, uh, you know, who who uh, who watched uh, Raines in his childhood and was his hero. Um, you know, I uh, basically penetrated uh, Reigns' inner circle, and uh, uh, he actually organized a party on Reigns' behalf that uh, the teams he played for contributed to, and uh, it was an invitation-only party. And and uh, you know, as I, I got to, I got one of those invitations, and it was like top-shelf stuff and really cool. And I actually got to meet Reigns briefly and uh, take a picture with him. And uh, um, you know, that was that was a really cool thing to see. You know, there are other Hall of Famers there, like Andre Dawson, and and. Uh, uh, Frank Thomas and um, Roberto Alomar. Uh, Bill Lee was there. Uh, crazy Bill Lee walking around wearing his Expos jersey uh, and, and half in the bag already. Uh, Commissioner Rob Manford even showed up, which is pretty strange when you consider, you know, 
the the uh, the role of the commissioner's office in in terms of the uh, uh, departure of the Expos from from Major League Baseball. Um, but uh, so that was interesting. It was anyway. It was a, it was a great weekend on the whole. And and you know I recommend to anybody that uh, if you get a chance to go to induction weekend, you do it. You got to do it once uh, at the very least. It's a logistical hassle uh, for sure. But Cooperstown is just a wonderful place. Yeah, see, I love the Hall of Fame, but I don't like people or the heat, so I don't know if I'm going to deal with uh, <laughs> the induction weekend that well. But uh, it's so it's so funny. We talked about Jonah lobbying for Tim Raines, and you were doing that for years as well. And this all sort of culminated in your intro chapter in your book. You talk about, you lay out many of the flaws of the Hall of Fame and the process, but why you still love it anyway. And I think about Tim Raines, who... This all happened with Jonah, and Jonah sort of became a part of Tim Raines' Hall of Fame story and became friends with him to the point where Raines is thanking him in his acceptance speech. But if the process worked properly, none of this would have happened. Raines just would have gotten in on his first or second year, and that would have been that, and Jonah wouldn't need to have lobbied for 15 years, and you wouldn't have needed to have done that either. And the system being broken sort of allowed Jonah to insert himself into the story, which is weird to begin with. You know, I, I, system is. I wouldn't say that the system is necessarily broken as, as so much as it's just, you know, wildly inefficient. And you know, the work that that we've done, uh, I think, in general, those of us who are coming to this from the advanced stats uh, area, uh, I think, have maybe helped try to try to fix it um, and to some varying degree. And I think those of us who've come just generally from the outside of the BBWA. Uh, to the inside have have uh, had an impact on it. I think, you know, I look at Reigns as being really the second beneficiary of a of a of a widespread grassroots campaign uh, that started with the bloggers and the outsiders uh, and and made it to the inside to get in and and Burt Blylevin being the first rich rich letterer, um, you know, who had his uh, baseball analyst blog. Uh, was the guy who who spearheaded that? Although you know there were a lot of people in a lot of different places doing stuff. Um, you know, to me, Bly Levin was like the the original aha moment of uh, my system before it was even called Jaws. That he was worthy of the Hall of Fame, and Jack Morris was not uh, on that uh, uh, the two thousand and four ballot. So, you know, I think that um, it, it would yeah, it would have been nice if Reigns had if Reigns had gotten in. Uh, you know, on the first ballot, but that he didn't, you know, the, I think it's, it's shown the impact of uh, how far we've come with, with uh, uh, bringing advanced stats into uh, the Hall of Fame discussion and into the mainstream in general. And, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, he's in the Hall of Fame and, and we're all happy for it. That's right. And ultimately, there are things where no players ever got in unanimously, and that's sort of ridiculous. And some guys who are very deserving get in on their fifth year and Ultimately, if you're in, you're in. It doesn't matter what percentage of the vote you got or what year it took. It, as long as you were alive to see yourself recognized, that's what matters. And unfortunately, too many people have been recognized posthumously. Yeah, and that's that's a that is a real problem. And and the Ron Santo case is you know was another one that was near and dear to me early on. And and unfortunately, we didn't win that battle uh, in quite the same way. You know, I, the I, I stress this over and over in the book, but the collision between um, human mortality and the bestowing of baseball immortality is, is is a violent one that's happened all too often. Uh, there are a number of guys who who, who were elected just after dying. Uh, it's like the old uh, entertainment adage that uh, death is a great career move. Um, you know, it's like the, these guys they were brought to the attention of voters because they had just died. Um, 
uh, Jimmy Collins, the first third baseman to get in, uh, Harry Heilman, um, Santo. Uh, there's a few others that uh, uh, that benefited as well. And it's it, you know it's sad. I mean, even you know I think that there's the the long delays for some of these guys is kind of a tragedy. I mean, I look Gary Carter. Uh, Gary Carter's number two in Jaws uh, among catchers. Gary Carter was a you know did everything you needed to do. Uh, I think to be worthy of the Hall of Fame, he had all-star appearances, Gold Gloves, et cetera, et cetera. Won, you know, won a World Series ring, um, put up great numbers on on both sides of the ball. And it took him six ballots to get in, and then he died of a brain tumor. You know, at, at a, what fifty-seven years old, so he didn't have all that much time to enjoy it. That's just that's that's fucked up, <laughs> you know. And uh, you know, so my push for all of this is to recognize these people while they're alive and. You know, so they can enjoy the honor, and you know, I think that just the the needless bureaucracy that that drags it back, and this customs of withholding votes on the first ballot is just so dumb. So, in that part of it, yeah, it is broken. But I think we're doing something to to try to fix that. I want to ask you about fixing it in general. You were a part of a committee, a BBWAA committee, that was um, set to explore different rules changes and different suggestions to offer the Hall of Fame about the process in general. And the committee ended up with a fairly modest proposal of just raising the 10 slot limit to 12. Were there bigger um, changes suggested in the in the meeting were there things that were I guess I should ask you about the philosophy behind the meeting in general were you trying to do something to say look we think that the system could be overhauled here are a bunch of ideas or were you trying to just say here's something that the hall might actually consider and let's try and get that done well we it started you know it, it started with a discussion of of the ongoing logjam on the ballot um, and uh, um, you know, and there was some initial resistance to to forming this study group to look at the problems, um, and eventually the, the the you know they they agreed to form the group. And uh, uh, Susan Slusser, past BBWA president, was was the chair of it, and she selected um, you know eight people for the group that ran you know a the the gamut uh, ideologically. Um, you know, there were I was I would say I was. Uh, uh, one of two people who were on the very liberal side of things in terms of like trying to bring about the most change, and there were some people on there who felt that it was just fine, um, you know, and people who you know have a whole lot more time in this industry than I do. Um, you know, I was uh, one of only two members on that committee that did not yet have the vote. Uh, the other one now does, and here I am. I'm the nerd with the spreadsheets. Um, I ended up writing uh, uh, one of the two position papers. Um, and uh, wrote up the wrote up the actual proposal uh, once once we came to a consensus. And really, you know, you look at the number, you look at the rules uh, that there are, and then you, it, it quickly becomes clear, you know, through back channels, uh, discussions with the hall, you know, with the committee, with you know, with with Susan, uh, or whatever that you know, some things are not in place. Seventy five percent is not going anywhere, uh, for example. So just don't don't even ask about that. Um, you know, we talked about the five-year. I mean, the you know the uh, sorry the five percent rule. Uh, talked about uh, um, you know the length of of, of uh, uh, time on the ballot a little bit. Although you know the hall ended up making its own change there without our input. Um, you know, really, what it came down to was because of the the ballot being so crowded that we wanted we wanted more space on the ballot. You know, it was ten slots ever since 1936 when there were 16 major league teams. That hasn't changed. There are now 30 teams. Stands to reason we should have more slots. Um, 
you know, I, I pushed for 15. Uh, there was uh, uh, Derek Gould, the uh, BBWA president at the time, um, had something that he called the binary ballot that, uh, you know, it was basically a, 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 an unlimited ballot, yes or no. Um, we felt uh, among our group that that was far too radical for the hall and some, you know, not enough people on the group liked it enough to really uh, get that going. Um, you know, 12 was a compromise and, you know, like all compromises, not everybody's happy with, with the way that turned out. Um, you know, but it was enough to, to at least start to, you know, start to move the needle, uh, we hoped. And unfortunately, the hall uh, ended up uh, tabling the motion, the, the, the board of directors, and we didn't find out until, you know, we submitted the proposal in late January. And we didn't find out until uh, November when the ballot came out um, that the motion had been tabled, but that they had talked about it at least. And, you know, they'll keep it in mind for the future. Um, you know, ultimately, it's the hall's game. You know, they draft the uh, the writers to vote, and, you know, we can give them our advice, but uh, uh, we don't have the final say in this. And, uh, you know, that's, but it was it was a very educational experience being on that committee, and, and, you know, I think for, you know, for somebody like me who's kind of still feels a bit like an outsider, even though I'm now uh, heading into my uh, uh, seventh year on the committee, I mean, uh, within the BBWA, you know, it felt like, okay, I've, I've done some service for, for this organization and, and tried to help us look better uh, on this front and, and contributed my knowledge. So, you know, I think that, that earned me some, some amount of credibility from, you know, from people who maybe doubted uh, what I was doing. Yeah, and I think the whole tabling that motion is about one issue. I don't think it was about them wanting to have complete control um, over the writers. I think it's because of the PED issue and they're kind of wanting to have it both ways with the with what they're saying and what they're doing. Yeah, they do want it both ways. And, and, and you know, for better or for worse, I think we're getting, or, you know, things are coming to a head because of uh, the uh, the advances of Bonds and, and Clemens in particular getting over 50% this, this last time. Um, you know, I think it's, a, it's still a slow march, but it's clear that, um, you know, enough of the electorate feels like it's time to, to start moving on this. And, and uh, you know, I think we'll see them inducted before the, before the rest of their eligibility runs out. I still doubt that. I still think they're going to get close, but not not all the way. I, I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if they get 68, 69 percent in that Jack Morris territory. He got there for different reasons, obviously, but I'm not convinced they're going to get to 75. And if they don't get in with the writers, they're not going to get in with any sort of veterans committee whatsoever. So I still think it, even though they only need 5 percent a year, I think there is going to be a big ceiling that they're going to hit where that they're just not going to get any more gains going forward. But I think that's what the hall wants. I don't think the hall wants them in, even though they won't say that. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, it's, to me, when you when you think of all the people who are, you know, all, all just the rate at which new voters put Bonds and Clemens on their ballots, um, from what we know from the ballots that are published, and the uh, much smaller rates at which the sunsetted voters uh, included Bonds and Clemens, and the fact that they're still going to continue to be voters sunsetted over the next few years, uh, and still going to be new voters coming on. It's, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a significant gain. Um, so I do think that we're going to see that. And, you know, I think by the, you know, by, they've got till 2020, 2022 
that's the 10 year eligibility window. I'm getting my ballot in 2021 and I'm going to be behind, you know, the first wave of uh, the internet only writers who, you know, who come from the analytical side, guys like Keith Law and uh, also my former prospectus colleague, uh, Christina Carl, uh, they will be ahead of me. There's, I, I know which way they're voting on that one. Um, and I and I think you know they're they're not alone. I think there are just a lot of writers who d- did not cover the game uh, during the Bonds years and don't feel that same sort of personal animosity uh, as some of these older writers may uh, because they feel like they were lied to. Um, you know, there's I think they just they see it very differently. So I I'm still pretty confident that uh, um, you know that this ends uh, with Flax and Cooperstown for both of those guys. I want to talk about some of the things you you detail in your book, and let's talk a bit about the Veterans Committee. The Veterans Committee, in all of its forms and all of the different subcommittees that the Veterans Committee has had, (laughs) has got a lot of flack, and a lot of that is for good reason, which you detail the amount of cronyism that elected a a slew of players from the 20s and 30s who are undeserving and some of the most unqualified players in the Hall of Fame. And a lot of that was with, uh, with Bill Terry, and um, who's the other the ex giant there? Frisch. Frankie Frisch. Frankie Frisch. Yep. And yeah. uh, those guys, they put in all their former teammates that they could. They put in as many of their contemporaries as they could, and they really watered it down. However, I think the Veterans Committee gets a bit of a bad rap in general because, you know, you have a, a graphic in your book that the standards of the players that they've put in in each position are significantly lower. And, well, yeah, they didn't get the chance to put in Willie Mays. They didn't get a chance to put in Ricky Henderson or of Mike course. Schmidt either. And I point that out, yes. Yes. And so I do There's think a, that, that given the opportunity, you know, ultimately the veterans committees still exist for one reason and one reason only. The Hall of Fame has never felt the writers have put in enough players. And you know what? I think they're right. So even though the veterans committee has not necessarily put in the right players, the function is still there because the writers don't put in enough themselves. Well, you have to remember that, there, you know, for, for a certain period of time, the veterans committee was the only one that had access to, you know, players, uh, uh, from the 19th century, and here I'm, I'm I'm kind of blending that in with the old timers committee. But there were there were players that never got really got consideration on the writers' ballot in the first place, and so historically, a lot of them had to go go in through the veterans committee channel. Um, but um, and they've had they've certainly had uh, some good choices, and I point out some of the some of them in the book. You know, especially in the early '60s, I think that when there were just so many to choose from, uh, and there was a real you know there was some, a real uh, motivation to you know to to do well with that committee. I think that they made some some good choices, and then I think you know you've got just that that decade there with Frankie Frisch and and, and then Bill Terry on the committee, um, where you know you've just got the strong whiff of cronyism uh, for a lot of these guys, and you've got just all these you know guys from the twenties and thirties with short careers and a, and a high offense era that rank you know in terms of jaws rank the lowest. Or, or second or third lowest at their positions, and just really, you know, are you know, gum up the works uh, when you're trying to uh, argue that somebody is up to the Hall of Fame standards or not, um, because there are now dozens of guys who are as good as those guys that are outside the Hall of Fame, and and so it's tough to get any kind of uh, uh, notion of fairness or equitability. Uh, you know, in that regard, and then you know you've got you've got some some good choices afterwards, like Pee Wee Pee Wee Reese, and and uh, um, some not so good choices. So you know, it's it's a very mixed bag. But uh, mostly, I think it just needs a lot of examination, a lot of you know. And I think the story the story needed to be told, and 
you know, to see the progression and, and the peaks and valleys of uh, uh, the committee's existence. Yeah, and that's that's a flawed process as well. I remember a few years ago they had a very stacked ballot before they changed it to the to the three committee that they had a ballot with Tony Oliva and Minia Minoso, Louis Tiant, Ken Boyer. There were like six legitimate deserving guys yeah, on that there's, ballot. There's a, yeah, there's there's a bunch of things. There's there's two main things that I think are are, are, are the problems with this with this process, uh, even now as it's split into multiple committees. One thing is that. It's too dominated by ex-players, you know, who have a self-interest at stake, um, and you know, have have personal feelings that that that, uh, that can get in the way of judgment, you know, and and not enough historians on the committee. You, I mean, you know, you've got old writers. That's not the same thing as having like trained historians, people who have, you know, a much longer view of history and and uh, um, you know have studied this process uh, intimately. Um, the second thing uh, I would say is that you've got executives and managers who are getting into this process for the first time, going up against these, um, you know, these these players who've been passed over multiple times, and it's not a fair fight. You know, if you've got a ballot that's only got four slots on it, and you're putting Bud Selig and John Schuerholz on there for the first time, or Tony Larusa, Joe Torre, and Bobby Cox all on the same ballot. You know, you're not doing. You're not. You're not being fair to any of those players on that ballot because the mathematic, the mathematics on that just do not work uh, for getting any kind of uh, uh, positive outcome there. I mean, you're just you're building. You know, you're. It's a sham, and you know that's really what I think the the, the problem is. If you're going to elect, you know, if you're going to charge those committees with electing executives and and former managers and whatever, which is fine. Um, I think you have to do that in a separate process so that they're not competing head to head with, you know, Dick Allen and Minnie Minoso and, and, or Ted Simmons and, and, uh, you know, whoever. I completely agree. And that year that Minoso and Tiant and Dick Allen and Olivia and Oliva were all on the ballot, I remember it came out afterwards that everybody on the committee thought at least four people were deserving. Every single person thought at least four were deserving, but no one got in because of the ballot jam. And because that, I mean, it's, right. it's almost like we're going to have another big potential class here where it's like the VC hasn't put in a living player since Bill Mazeroski, and that was one of their big oopsies. Uh, the right, VC that was, has... That was a broken system. <laughs> yep, that was bad. And the VC is traditionally very good at putting it in dead white guys. That's like a, one of their great hallmarks is putting in dead white guys. Yeah. But we're going to have an era committee here where potentially Jack Morris, Dale Murphy, Alan Trammell, Dwight Evans. We're going to see a bunch of guys that could get in. But if they stack that ballot too much, none of them will get in. Well, I don't. I, I, I certainly don't think some of those guys are going to get in. I mean, to me, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned over and over again is that if you don't do well on the writer's ballot, you have almost no chance on the on the uh, uh, the veterans ballots because, the, you know, it's like they don't. The, the line doesn't start with the guys who got less than 5%. I mean, some of those guys can't even get on those ballots. Bobby Critch has never been on a Veterans Committee ballot. Uh, Lou Whitaker has never been on one of those ballots. Um, you know, Ted Simmons has been on one. Ron Santo, uh, you know, we we discussed. I mean, that's one of the few. Dick Allen, another 5% guy. I mean, he, you know, it's, t- it's taken him a long time to get uh, to where he got, which was just short of election, um, you know, in, in that... that uh, uh, golden era ballots. So, you know, I don't think I don't think Dwight Evans has a chance. Just you know, just 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 to reel off one name here. I know he lasted more than one year on the ballot, but he didn't get more than about ten percent. 
at, at any time. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't like his chances. I think Jack Morris is an inevitability. I don't think Dale Murphy's an inevitability. Um, you know, because he pulled in the low twenties. Um, but you know, there's there are a lot of familiar names for sure. And yes, putting them all on one ballot is going to make it very tough to uh, for anybody to get elected. Yeah, so I actually, despite all of the Morris, we don't need to have Morris, the Morris debate again. We're on the same side. We're going to have it again for the next 10 years with Omar Vizquel anyway. Just the same thing with the different player name. Morris is going to get in almost unanimously, I think, in his first year. Despite the VC not electing living players that much, I think the old school guys on the Veterans Committee and the former players who are going to see most wins in the 80s and remember that postseason game, I think he's going to get like 15 out of the 16 votes and get right in. I do think Murphy has a chance, but we'll see about Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker. Trammel lasted the whole run. Whitaker got bounced right away. I mean, is one going to get in and not the other? That seems silly, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I have to think that the discussion of Jack Morris is going to turn some positive attention towards Whitaker and and, and uh, Trammel because, you know, look, one of the big knocks on Jack Morris was that he didn't strike out enough guys. He, you know, he owed, you know, he did he wasn't great at run prevention. He owed a lot of of what he did to to his defense and to, who was his defense? Those two guys were constants for you know the first uh, uh, dozen years of his career or whatever. So, um, you know, if you're going to reward him, you got to reward them, uh, and they're the ones really who should be in the Hall of Fame, not him, as far as I'm concerned, and, and I'm not alone in that. Agree with you on that. I was thinking about what hurts the Hall of Fame's credibility more. What if, let's say, we had a handful of players that over the next 12 to 15 years are in? Jack Morris, Omar Vizquel, who knows, Yadier Molina. There's, he's already got the Hall of Fame buzz surrounding him for some reason. Lee Smith, Dale Murphy, guys who fall below the line in, with advanced metrics and really with, with counting or traditional numbers as well. They're guys that fall a little bit short. If those guys all got in, I think the Hall can absorb that. What to me hurts the Hall of Fame's credibility more, or would hurt it more than those guys going in, are people like Schilling and Musina and Larry Walker being kept out. That to me is a bigger stain on the Hall of Fame. To me, if Jack Morris could go in, if we could in theory make a trade, Jack Morris goes in, but it helps Schilling and Musina, I'd be willing to make that trade any day. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd go one for one on those two, but yeah, I, th- I, mean, I, I, I do think that yes, guys being on the outside in in some ways is is a bigger problem than 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 those being in. You know, and I think you know, remembering back to to something that I wrote, um, Jack Morris didn't ask to be a symbol in this you know in this cultural war that that uh, he became such a battleground uh, for. If he gets in, he gets in, and, and you know, I'll be happy for the guy. You know, because I think that. Uh, uh, being caught up in this in this thing, you know, caused him some some sadness and some pain, and that was never anybody's intention, I don't think. Um, but you know, I, I still committed to a clear-eyed process that's not dependent on emotion, and uh, you know, I'd like to believe that that uh, the right guys can get elected here, and I think we're seeing more signs of that in the last you know few years than we had. Uh, in the previous half decade or even the previous decade. I mean, you know, if you look back over the history of the time I've been doing this, I mean, you know, Jim Rice is the one I w- is, is the is the big mistake I would point to uh, in terms of the BBWAA. Um, there are guys get, not getting in that, I, that I'm, you know, teed off about. Uh, but in terms of the ones getting in, uh, you know, it's it's only Jim Rice that, that, that you know, I'm not crazy about the Bruce Sutter one, but I certainly understand the historical importance that uh, uh, some feel he brings with, you know, being, uh, you know, a pivotal p- 
point in the uh, uh, development of the modern closer and, and in terms of popularizing the, the, the split-fingered fastball. Um, but you know, by and large, the writers' choices on who they've elected uh, in that span have been you know, generally pretty good. It's, it's who they haven't elected that, that, that we gnash our teeth over. One of the things that I've harped upon forever, and it's one of the things that you dedicate a lot of time with in your book as well, is that modern players are underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. You have a little graphic in the book that says players born through 1939 with at least 10 seasons played, which is the minimum required for the Hall. Uh, 12% of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. If they accumulated either 5,000 plate appearances or 2,000 innings pitched, that number almost doubles to 23.7%. So basically a quarter of players with either 5,000 plate appearances or 2,000 innings pitched get into the Hall of Fame if they were born between 1939. One and four. That's crazy. But players born after that point, after 1939, those numbers shrink to 2.8% for the total number of players and 7.9% for those that hit either 5,000 plate appearances or 2,000 innings pitched. And that makes me wonder if not only do we need to get more modern players into the Hall of Fame, I think that's obvious, but are we going to have to lower our standards to do that? Even look at Jaws. I looked at this this morning, 122 players, only 122 of them, fully clear the Jaws standard. And to be clear, in your book, you advocate for players being in the Hall who fall below. Um, and that's one of the better parts of the book. You you make a lot of cases for people who come a little bit below Jaws as well, but only 122 fully clear it. And if we want more modern players in, we're going to have to lower our standards, both with in terms of Jaws and wins above replacement, but also in terms of traditional counting numbers as well. You know, I, I'm not sure I totally agree with you there, because I mean, I we've identified some of these guys who are, you know, like essentially missing generations, 70s guys like Simmons and 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 Trammell and Whitaker and Gritch, you know, all of whom, you know, clear the bar, uh, more or less. Um, we can point to, uh, Minoso and Allen who don't quite clear the bar, but who are, you know, I think fit the definitions of, uh, our understanding of a hall of famer, um, and had some career interruption stuff that I think, you know, was, was, was beyond their control, you know, enough so that we, that we, uh, uh, kind of give them, you know, give them the, the 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 credit for for getting there, and we should be. Um, I, I think there are enough guys missing from the Hall of Fame uh, from you know from certain periods that I think we we can flesh it out. We're never going to get up to the to nor should we. I don't think get up to the level of representation that we had, you know, from you know first half of the the twentieth century because I think we're we're lousy with those guys. Um, but it should be much higher than it is. Um, and if we had a functioning veterans committee that was that was able to elect the right guys, it wouldn't be a problem. But you know that's not the case. Um, you know, so we're stuck advocating for these guys. I don't. I don't think you know we really have to lower the standards uh, significantly. I think. Well, the one th- the one area I'll say is after uh, Messina and Schilling and Halliday, um, it's going to be a long time before we see a starting pitcher that measures up even to those guys. Um, in terms of Jaws, I was looking at Granky today, and you know, even he's got a ways to go. Obviously, Kershaw um, has the traditional accomplishments, but but not and, and the technical uh, qualification of ten years pitch, but not the longevity. Um, it's tough to see now uh, from among guys like uh, you know Felix Hernandez and Justin Verlander and CC Sabathia, um, who is going to pull out of these mid-career plunges into, you know, injuries and mediocrity and, and, and survive long enough to get into the hall. Um, you know, I don't know if any of those three guys is. 
Uh, Max Scherzer seems to be go, you know, seems to be on his way, but you know, injuries happen uh, to all, you know, can can happen to any of these guys, and uh, um, you know, so we may have to rethink where we draw the line for you know for the next generation of pitchers. But I don't think, looking backwards, we have to lower our standards at all to the point where we're, you know, electing somebody like, you know, who's thirtieth and Jaws at the position, you know, just just to just to fill it out. They're just all. I mean. You've got top 10 guys or, or top 12 guys outside the hall. You know, Andrew Jones is going to be outside the hall very soon. Uh, Scott Rowland as well. Larry Walker. Uh, you know, those guys are, are, the, are the important ones to get in, and they're well above the bar. So Kenny Lofton got know. bounced his first year. Kenny Lofton, Ken, yes, Kenny Lofton, another one. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we've got guys that are easily in the top 12 or at their position uh, that, are, that are getting slighted. And if they're, you know, quote-unquote below the standard, it's just below the standard. So... You know, I, I've I've always said that if you're in a top ten of the position, no matter what the, what the standards are, you know you're 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 almost certainly deserving of a vote. In your subtitle of your book, you mentioned who should pack their bags. Do you think the Hall of Fame should actually kick anybody out? No, um, you know I joke about it. Uh, it was certainly you know the 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 title uh, that that portion of the subtitle, which was supplied by former baseball perspectives colleague Derek Chalk, uh, dates back to 2007 when when the idea of the book, you know, was first, you know, kind of pitched to me by my, by my BP colleagues. Um, and it fit with sort of, you know, the incendiary spirit, uh, of my work at the time. But, you know, as I've grown to study the hall and, you know, to be, you know, accepted within the, uh, uh the BBWAA and, and, uh, uh, you know, to gain credibility in this area, what I realized is that, you know, I don't really want to bring, I don't really want to kick these guys out of the hall. I want to, you know, to me, it's more important to understand what they brought to baseball history, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, to appreciate what they gave us to understand where they're short and how they got in and to try to make sure that, you know, that we don't make those mistakes again. You know, I really loved writing about some of these, you know, marginal Hall of Famers in the book. They're some of my favorite characters. Um you know, and they do bring something. I mean, we've all heard the stories of Babe Ruth. You know, we've all heard the stories of you know, the most common Hall of Famers. But who know? You know, who knows about Chick Hafey? Not a lot of people know about Chick Hafey, even though he's a lousy Hall of Famer. He's just it's still worth learning about. Um, you know, and I think I think that's important. And I think that that you know the the, the who should pack their plaques part is is, is kind of tongue in cheek. And and uh, um, you know the the turn the the turn from that hardline stance, I think, reflects the uh, uh, the 10 years that this book was in the making and the ways that I've uh, uh, grown up, mellowed, sold out, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. One of the first blog pieces I did is like 63 members of the Hall of Fame that don't belong there. And I don't think the Hall should actually remove any of these people because in the end, it doesn't accomplish anything. And I actually think it would be harmful it would be counterproductive as i think it would dilute the honor to the players i mean let's face it if you're jim rice and you see a bunch of guys from the 20s and 30s getting booted don't you have to wonder in the back of your head if 30 years from now that's going to be you i think it would diminish the accomplishment to the players and then you've lost the hall yes and, and i think you have to be very careful about about that and about uh you know there's a lot of hurt feelings at stake here and and you know while you think you don't you know you think that uh, um you know it's not your problem. You know, I've been to those clubhouses, and that's not necessarily up against Hall of Famers, but up against the players. They're human beings, and if they don't like you, they're, you know, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. Um, you know, if you, and if you're going to be advocating for the, for the, something like that, you, you know, you're, 
your chicken if you're not uh, uh, actually putting yourself in a position where, where where you can where you you know where you can be accountable for that. So I don't know. It's a uh, um, I think it's much more productive ultimately to uh, uh, to accept what's there, but just 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 to try to make things better rather than to uh, uh, try to blow the place up. You've been listening to Jay Jaffe. You can give him a follow on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe and pick up his excellent new book, The Cooperstown Casebook. Jay, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Hey, sure thing, Ross. Glad we could finally get this together. 